This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is April 23rd, 2021. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Uh, my name is Susan Zizza. Sue Zizza, as everyone knew me. And um, I entered Hofstra University in 1977 in the fall. And while I did not complete my undergraduate degree till a number of years later, I actually left Hofstra in 1980. I walked at my graduation and left Hofstra in 1980 uh, to take a full-time position uh, just outside of Manhattan. And then years later came back and actually formally finished my degree. And what year was that? 1987. Okay. Uh, so during your time as an undergraduate at Hofstra Radio, did you have any titles or positions at the station? Yes, I did. Um, I came in as a freshman, and in my first freshman semester, um, I was very lucky in that Jeff Krause was kind enough to allow me to produce an audio project, a radio drama of uh, The Nutcracker using uh, music from Tchaikovsky and all of that. And because I had uh, begun to work with him in November of 1977 on that project, by February of 1978, when the then music director, excuse me, news director, when the then news director retired or quit or left school, I'm not really remembering what they had done, um, I was uh, given the position. So my second semester freshman year, I was given the title of news director. And then um, the next year in my sophomore year, uh, I was given the title of public relations director. And then in my junior and senior years, I was the program director. I always appreciate someone who knows the dates. That's, uh, that's exciting to hear. Um, what um, shows did you host or produce otherwise while you were at Hofstra Radio? Well, I did a lot of arts programming. Um, many, 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 many radio plays were produced. I also did news and documentary work. In fact, today I was sharing with my students at New York University that in 1979, thanks to Teddy Ronneberger, I was able to go into Manhattan and interview Entezaki Shangay about her then Broadway production of For Colored Girls. And I remember taking the Your Recorder with me and, you know, all of that. So I did news, I did documentary. There was a program, I, I think it was called The Long Island Woman or something. It was a news show. I think it's still even produced now. News documentary interview kind of show. And then one of the things that I'm proudest of is I was a country western disc jockey at WVHC. Mm -hmm. um, did you use your own name on the air or did you have a, a non-air name or a nickname? Well, I will tell you, I use my own name and I learned from uh, doing that country western show that that might not always be a great idea because there was a group of prisoners in the Nassau County Jail that really used to like our Saturday uh, folk and country programming. And I would uh, often get um, 
personal letters <laughs> from those inmates. So, you know, I, I, when I did go to uh, work uh, for the weather company for a while, what was that? Uh, weather casters, Metro weather or something. Um, I did actually end up using a different name because of what had happened with those letters that I get from the guys from the prison. Wow. That's, that's a fan club. Um, <laughs> it was a fan club actually. <laughs> um, Oh, thank goodness the the media was at the time what it was instead of uh, today with uh, with the internet and so forth. So uh, small favors, I guess. So yeah. when you first went to the station, uh, this is a two part question, and answer it as you like. But what first brought you to the station, and if you could describe for those of us who weren't there, what was the station like? Maybe who you met, what the studios or the office were like uh, when you first got there. So I went to Sawanica High School, and um, in my senior year, um, I had a, a boyfriend who was a photographer who had gone to Hofstra. And so one day, he took me over to Hofstra to see the television station, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Wayne Kurtzman was coming out of the um facility and talking to someone and talking about the radio station i'm pretty sure it was wayne and i turned to alex and i said oh the tv kind of thing is interesting but what's the radio and he said oh the radio station is run by this really cool guy his name is jeff kraus um i'll take you over there next and so we had gone up stairs to the office in Memorial Hall, but the door was locked. And so he said, well, we'll go over to the little theater. And we walked across campus to the little theater building and we walked down the stairs. And those stairs seemed to be awfully deep and awfully endless, I remember. They were a really steep set of stairs. And then when we got into the radio station, there was Jeffrey, there was a little desk at the front of the um, entranceway where the foyer was, and Jeffrey was sitting at the desk talking to someone and smoking a cigarette. I remember that he was smoking a cigarette, and he looked up and he, he smiled and nodded, and Alex introduced me as a potential undergraduate, and he said, well, nice to meet you. Uh, go take a look around the place. Maybe you'll end up here in radio. And so um, the next year, uh, I, I had applied to Hofstra. And so after looking at the radio station and looking at that really dank facility in the basement of the little theater, but yet recognizing there was this energy there, there was something different going on there. Whereas the TV facility was bright and nice and it seemed clean. This facility was, you know, quite different. And yet there was this energy. There were these people that were really just there. So um, because of my personal situation, I wasn't sure I'd be able to afford to go to Hofstra, except that my foster dad was kind enough to take me to meet a counselor at the university who made it possible, gave me enough scholarship, and there were other funds available to me in my unique situation. 
so that when I came back around in the fall of 1977, I was like Goldilocks. I started in the TV facility because that's where, you know, Alex had brought me first. And by now, Alex was at NYU in the film school. He had transferred out. I, I didn't even know where he was anymore at that point. You know, our lives had gone different places. And um, I went first to the TV facility. I met Bill Wren and Nancy Kaplan. And I looked around and I went, nope, not for me. And then I went over to the Chronicle. Okay, so in September, I was at the TV studio. In October, I went to the Chronicle looked around and I used to write for the Chronicle occasionally, but nope, not for me. And then I remembered the radio station and I went upstairs to the office at the radio station and there was Linda Dayleader, the program director, and Steve Graziano, who I believe was the music director at the time, and Jeffrey was there at his desk. And I said, well, you know, I, I think I might like to try to do a radio production and uh, Linda said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, with the holidays coming up, I thought maybe we could do something about Christmas. And Jeffrey's ears perked up and he said, you want to do something about Christmas? And I said, yeah, I, I like telling stories in the radio, on the radio. I like the sound. I like telling stories in sound, I think was what I said to him or something like that. And he said, well, what's your idea? And the next thing I knew, I was you know, given the opportunity to record this piece, The Nutcracker, and, you know, create this, um, this production, and I was bit, I was, I was, uh, that was it for me, I never went back to TV or The Chronicle. Wow, well, that's quite an entry uh, into the station, so, so it seems like you, you, you're jumping in with both feet into this production, did you have any background in radio? No, I didn't. But what I did have background in was um, I had gone at, to Suwanaka High School, as I mentioned. At Suwanaka High School, we had a theater teacher. I wish I could remember her name. I can still see her face and her curly hair, but I don't know her name. And um, she had uh, decided that she wanted to bring up the quality of the theater performances at Suwanaka. And so she was going to do Dracula, and um, I wanted to try my hand at acting. So I had applied, you know, an audition for Nina Harker. But the, the, the person they brought in to play Jonathan was so tall, and I'm only four foot ten. So when they brought him in on stage, the director looked and said, you know, Sue, your audition was really, really good, but this doesn't work. You know, visually, you got this really tall guy playing this and this Mina, we need her to be taller. And she said, is there anything else you want to try to do? Because she knew I was disappointed, you know. And I said, well, I, I, maybe I could make like some sound and because I had a cassette machine and I used to love to do nothing more then listen to these stories on the radio out of Chicago called Unshackled on a Sunday morning. They were Bible stories, and I was allowed to listen to them because they were Bible stories. And Dan Ingram's voice, I would record all these little cutaways of Dan. I didn't cut record the music. I was recording Dan Ingram, mm. you know? And so 
I said to her, you know, maybe I could do something, you know, with the sound. And so she said to me, well, you know, we do need good sound for Dracula. So, you know, why don't you see what's possible? And there was a person who worked at the theater who um, found out that I was going to be doing stuff with, you know, the sound of bats and everything. And he said to me, you really want to have some fun? And I said, yeah, yeah, let's have some fun. And he said to me, I'm going to put these speakers in serial for you. So that meant that when a sound played, it played in speaker number one, and then it played in speaker number two, and then it played in speaker number three. And he made it so that the speakers in the theater, when I played the sound of the bat of Dracula coming off the stage into the audience, even though Mina was on stage, my bats got all the attention. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And that was it, Brian. I was hooked. I thought, hey, it doesn't matter what I look like. I was able to, by taking the sounds of the bats and the way this man had put the speakers together for me and everything. I mean, he was totally into it too, you know, and the music and everything. And every time those bats flew, it didn't matter how pretty she was. It didn't matter how tall she was. People were scared of my bats. They were responding to that. You know what I mean? And that was it. I was stuck. So when I got to Hofstra, we had just done at Sawanica the past December, we had just done a version of the Nutcracker that because of my uh, work with our theater teacher relied very, very heavily on the music and a dramatic interpretation of the story as opposed to the normal dance and all the rest of that. Not that we didn't have people dancing around too, but she really focused on the drama and the music. So that was the script I brought to Jeffrey. And I said, do you think we could adapt this even further? And he showed me how to add more music and sound effects. And then Christmas production became the thing that I love to do the most. Oh my gosh, Christmas Carol. And I just this past year got hired by a theater company out of um, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, the, uh, the, where they do the Humana Festival of Plays. And I, and I ended up doing the sound design for Christmas Carol, you know, I just for a radio version of a Christmas Carol. So it just has become, you know, my favorite thing to do our holiday programming. It was how I met, you know, many years later, uh, an undergraduate student as well. Wow. Uh, so you're, you're learning on the fly based on what you already know, but in terms of being on air, you said you did news and uh, the country music show. Did you have to go through announcing training to get on the air? Did you have to apply for an FCC license? How did that go? Oh, yes. We had to all get our third class FCC license. You had to go down to Varick Street and sit for the test. Oh, my God. I remember that. Wow. And then um, the other thing was in terms of training. Now, here's a weirdness. So when I was about six years old, we moved from Queens to Elmont. And across the street were a, a family that had a young girl my age named Terry. And the mom's name was Joy. And every Sunday from the time I was about six, most Sundays, I should say, not every Sunday, but most Sundays from the time that I was about six, we would get together after church and we would sit and listen to polka music, okay, in the kitchen. 
So uh, I go to Hofstra and I'm applied to be a continuity announcer. Remember those continuity announcers? And I got my first gig and it was on a Sunday afternoon for Sweet Olson. And there I am. Uh, and I remember being so nervous the very first time I had to read a public service announcement, the very first time I had to do the station ID and cut away. I remember the red light going on and everything. But literally, Brian, moments after I got off the air, the phone starts ringing, ringing, ringing. And Swede picks up the phone and he goes, Joy, it's so nice to hear from you. And he, and he goes, what? Sh okay, sure. And he hands me the phone. And I'm like, why is somebody calling me here, you know? And it was my girlfriend's mother asking me what the hell I was doing on the radio that day. And I was like, what are you kidding me? It never connected to me that that polka music we were listening to most Sundays in Joy's Kitchen was Swede from WVHC. And then the first time I ever was on the air was being his continuity announcer. And there was Joy on the phone, like, you know, so that was a very strange moment in time. I have to admit, it didn't occur to me there was a connection there that all that time I'd been listening to the radio station. That's amazing. When worlds collide like that, that's, that's really yeah, interesting. It really it really was kind of weird. It really was kind of weird because I could have gone to NYU. I could have followed Alex and gone to NYU, but there was something that probably that really good financial aid package uh, that they put together for me. But yeah, I think Hofstra was where I needed to be. So you mentioned your first time on the air and, and eventually, I guess, after you've your first time on the air, you've already got a fan club ready. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so, so I, I guess my next question is that when did you start to feel comfortable on the air or working production, doing these uh, radio theater productions? When did you feel like I, I've got this? I feel really comfortable. I feel good about it. Brian, I still produce that work today. And every time I go into the studio, I still approach it as if it's the first time. I can't help but be awed by the fact that my brain works the way it does and I'm able to hear the world the way I do and then re-piece it back together in the way that I tell stories and sound only. So I don't still think that I, I, to this day, I still feel like I'm constantly learning. I'm teaching this at NYU now, and I'm learning from my students. I hear them do a thing. I watch them use Pro Tools in a particular fashion, and I go, oh my God, what a great idea. Mm. I'm stealing that from you, mm -hmm. you know? So to me, there's still so much more learning to do. And insofar as the producing that I did at the radio station, that was the thing about it was it was an endless opportunity. You could make out of it what you wanted. If you wanted to do news and documentary work, it was it was possible. But for me, I did all of that. I did the news stuff. I did the documentary stuff. I did the music stuff. But for me, it was telling stories in that unique way that only audio can do 
that ultimately became my career, my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And um, I think, you know, I, I remember the first time Jeff and I talked about what made audio fiction, audio drama, the radio play uh, so powerful as a teaching tool is the fact that it really shows you the best way to use the four building blocks of audio storytelling. There's music, there's voice, there's sound effects, and then there's silence. And by putting those four together and learning how to tell a really good story, it made me a better news producer. It made me a better documentary producer. It made me a better music host. You know, it made me better in every other way. And it became the thing that I fell in love with the most, telling my stories that way. So you mentioned this this conversation. I imagine it was an ongoing conversation. But can you place that in time when you talked with Jeff about these building blocks? Was it when you were still relatively new at the station? Or is this later on after you had well, some experience? Well, you talked about training. And the way Jeff trained us was every everyone who came into the radio station was asked to produce, participate in producing a short piece of audio fiction or a radio play or radio drama, whatever you want to call it. But that's where we all started. That was his forte. He understood how to tell stories and sound. He was a great actor. He was a great sound performer. And so he really understood it and he was comfortable with it. So because of that, if you wanted to have the opportunity to advance yourself, you know, even Todd Ant had to do a little acting at one point. You know what I mean? <laughs> like everybody did it. And then... You know, when things changed and Bruce came in, the training became very quantified. But under the um, the way that Jeff taught us, it was much more Aristotelian, if you know what I mean. He would show us how to do a thing, or maybe it's Socrates who did it this way, but he would show us how to do a thing, and then he would let us do it on our own. You know what I mean? Sure. Whereas the current from what I understand, training is much more quantified and much more um, uh, easier to track. And it, it was it was different. You know, it was different. We didn't have more than 100 students participating at a time. You know, we would only be maybe 30, 40 students at most in a semester. You know, we were a very tight-knit group. We were very much, um, yeah, we were a very tight-knit group. I guess what I'm trying to get a, a handle on is, you know, as you walk in there and you had the the confidence and, and, and the idea to, to step up right away and say, I've got this idea, I want to do it. And, and they agreed to that. I guess what I'm trying to understand is as, as you get started there, and for those of us who weren't there, the type of environment that Jeff created for you to take chances and to learn and to listen and to put forth ideas. Well, you know, Brian, it was a very unstructured and yet structured environment because when I say it was unstructured, anyone could approach him with any idea right. if he liked it and, and it was something that he thought that you could achieve. You might not achieve it. I mean, I would not want to listen to a nutcracker today. You know what sure. I mean? Um, it, but but he, he gave you the encouragement. 
he made you believe that you could in fact do this thing and because we were a bit ragtag um a bit um the underdog mm-hmm. on campus you know it 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 bound us together in a very different kind of a way and so when you ask what was it like it was like nothing i've ever experienced before because there was just like for example when you uh would come into the office at the top of memorial hall there you get up to the top of the stairs and you'd open the door and there would be these rows of the student desks and in the center at the end would be the general manager jeffrey but he always um as much as he was always approachable he also wanted you to go through the program director the station manager you know to make sure that they were also learning their skill sets and so um i i think that in terms of what made it unique was because jeff allowed you to achieve to your level of success he had a unique ability to recognize what a student's strengths and and weaknesses might be and he would really encourage the strengths so for example in me uh not much of an actress okay not much of an actress i do i do love performing now and again but i'm it's not what i do however um he understood that i was a producer he understood that i was a director he understood that i was a sound designer he understood that i was a geek and i could understand how to take apart a tape machine and put it back together if i needed to because teddy ronneberger taught me how to do that Mm -hmm. and and so he allowed me and allowed all of us to find those strengths that we had and he would push us even further so that when i when someone else would come up with an idea of wanting to do something he'd say well have sue help you produce it because he knew that that would stretch my producing skills in a new area or he'd you know ask uh you know he'd say well you know you could you could work with uh, sue in the studio on that because he knew that i would show someone how to edit and by showing them how to edit i was improving my editing skills you know that kind of thing absolutely absolutely you've you've mentioned some some great names that that i remember hearing in my days at hofstra radio at teddy and so forth who else was was helpful as you were getting started there who were the other students or or producers that were uh key to getting you settled and educated there well i think elliot lifson uh, probably had a big influence on me uh, because Elliot was a, a very kind, a soft-spoken individual. He had come into the radio station as a volunteer, never went to Hofstra ever, and got himself a job as an engineer at WHLI right up the road. And so when they had a news opening, you know, he would call Jeff and say, hey, there's a news position available. We're looking for a news writer. And so that's how I ended up working at WHLI. 
Um, and then Elliot uh, taught me a lot about uh, music. Like when they were proposing doing the country western show, and Steve did, <laughs> Steve Graziano had come up with this idea to do this country western show on Saturdays and Sundays, mm-hmm. and um, I I thought the idea was kind of um, ridiculous. Because what Steve had done was he had created a top 40 clock and he wanted this Saturday and Sunday show to sound like top 40 country. And I, and I said to him in a production meeting, I said, Steve, you know, a monkey could do this show. The way you set this up, a monkey could do this show. I said, you don't have to know anything about country music at all. And he said to me, oh, yeah, well, you do it this Saturday and see how easy it is to do. Okay. I mean, that's how we used to talk to each other. All right, yo, you do it, you know. So that Saturday, I said, okay, fine. And I went down to the studio about an hour before, and I'd gone through the very limited country music records there were. And I said to Steve, I said, if I'm going to do this, though, I don't want to follow your clock. I think your clock is, is you know, a monkey. Literally. I, it just looked like to me anybody could, you know, it didn't require any thought at all, you know. So I said to him, and I appreciated why he was trying to introduce that to us, because that what was that was what was happening in commercial radio at the time. And if you wanted a chance to practice, but I didn't. It wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to do art. I wanted to do something creative, you know? So I said to him, all right, Steve, I tell you what, the first hour I'll do exactly as you tell me to do it, but this is a four-hour show or a three-hour show. I said, but then I would like to do the second and the third hour my own way and show you how being creative and you know, I don't know much about country music, but I, I think I might be able to do something interesting. So he said, okay, fine, do what you, you know, and, and he was just happy to have the slot covered. Right. You remember those, was, you know, yeah. just yeah. happy to have the slot covered. <laughs> so I said, okay, fine. You know, and that was something else unique that Jeffrey did without paying most of us, without paying most of us, he somehow found a way to make us responsible for every minute of airtime. You remember that? Oh, How sure. that would be the, the, the fact, you know, that you were. So he gave us ownership of the airwaves. He allowed us to, to really feel like that would belong to us so that we would be responsible and he didn't have to get up and do the slot himself, you know? <laughs> so anyway, I go and I go into Duma and I remember this about Elliot. So I had talked to Elliot about the fact that I was going to do this country Western thing and that, you know, Steve and I had gotten into a bit of a conversation about it. And Elliot said to me, okay, so the first hour you do it like this, you follow the clock exactly. But the second hour, Sue, start listening to the lyrics and think about the stories that these singers are telling. Think about the emotional content. Think about, you know, the rhythm and the pacing and the energy of these And as you bring them together in your next two hours, you know, really try and find a a way that um, speaks to you 
and allows the music to shine at its best because you know to me country western music at the time brian yeah. was mm -hmm. you know what i mean like you were looking underneath the mat on the floor in your car going where is that what is that so you know to me it was like <laughs> it wasn't jazz you know so anyway so i took elliot's advice i took elliot's advice and i did exactly what he suggested that first hour i followed the clock exactly the way steve had told me and then in that second and third hour, I began to explore and, you know, oh, what's this? And, oh, what's that? And, oh, you know, and the next thing I knew, the phone was ringing. And in the second and third hours, all of a sudden, all these people, including, what was his name? That fellow who ended up doing Out Behind the Barn, Ir Al Irv Simner. Irv Simner called me that day, that very first day I was doing that wow. show. And he said, oh, my God, this is a wonderful music show. He goes, you know, I was listening from the first hour because there was a big article in the paper about how Hofstra Radio was going to be doing country Western music. I mean, Steve did do that very well. He got it, you know, really well uh, hyped. And so um, this guy, Irv Simner, calls me up and he says, I've been listening since the first hour. He goes, you know, the first hour was okay. He goes, you know, you played a lot of the usual stuff. He goes, but now this new stuff you're playing. Listen, let me tell you a story about Loretta Lynn. Do you mind? Do you have a minute? And I go, sure, Irv, what the heck? You know? and, and he would tell me a story about Loretta Lynn. And I would go, and in our very limited record collection, I would find, because Steve did make sure we had the hits, I'd find it, and I'd, I'd play it, and I'd say, hey, you know, this this uh, listener just called in and, and shared this story about Loretta Lynn, and, you know, if you want to share some stories. And then I began to let the audience program the show for me on a Saturday. I would just show up 10 minutes before I'd have two opening cuts and I'd say, today we're going to be doing, and then, and the next thing you know, there'd be Irv. And there were like 12 or 14 different people who would call every single Saturday. They would, they would have some really good suggestions. And because of it, I ended up being for four years, a very popular country Western DJ on Long Island. I actually hosted a big music festival at the uh, Massapequa Mall one time where they had all these fiddlers come in. Oh, yeah, it was quite exciting. So Steve, without knowing it, had, you know, given me an opportunity. And in that disagreement, um, you know, actually was born. And that, that show lasted four years until I finally retired. Uh, oh no, Irv took it over. Irv took it over. That's right. okay. Okay. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah, I was Irv on the other side of those conversations with Irv more than a few times. So yes, I do yes. remember. And, and I, I went to his house. He invited me to come to his house. I remember Scott Cinnamon and I went together because you know we were concerned. And um uh and and he made this his wife made this lovely dinner and he showed me these walls and walls of records. And he would come by every once in a while and visit, you know, and, and he'd bring some records for me to play. And yeah, there were there were a group of people who actually became sort of my, you know, advisors. They taught me an awful lot about country music. And years later, when I got to interview Hank Williams Jr. and Johnny Cash at the bottom line, wow. oh my God, you'd think I died and gone to heaven. Wow. 
That's that's impressive. That's very cool. Yeah, that show really. Yeah, I don't. Rem- it was the Long Island Country, I think they called it. I don't remember, but yeah, it was really fun. And at the bottom line, right, you know, sure. over in Roslyn, they used to have on uh, Thursday nights they do folk and country. And I met Hank Williams Jr. I met Johnny Cash. Uh, oh, I met a lot of people there, but those are the two that I remember really being, you know. Big, Just yeah, big stars. Overwhelmed with, overwhelmed with. So, so this isn't on the list of questions, but I've been piecing things together from from folks from your era and then and my era. And when I was at Hofstra Radio in the '90s, the 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 studio and the office were in the basement of Memorial Hall. And when you started mm-hmm. at VHC, the the studio was in the little theater, and there was an office upstairs in Memorial Hall. Yes. If you went back where, you know, the walkway where Emily Lowe Gallery was? Yes. Okay. So there was a back entrance to Memorial Hall there. And if you went up that back stairway, there there had been another set of classrooms across from WVHC. And the main office was upstairs so that when we looked out of the when you were when you were facing the door, if you were at Jeffrey's desk facing the door, to the right was the roof of Emily Lowe, okay. and to the left was an open the open lot, and we used to take records and we would spin them out the windows and have them land on the roof of Emily Lowe. We put a desk out there once. There was a car that went out there once. Oh yeah, there was, there was a lot of stuff that went out those windows. Very well. That that's that's news <laughs> to me. But also, as I was talking to different people, trying to figure out the the evolution of the station, getting out of the basement at the little theater, getting over to the studios at Memorial, and then the eventual move to the new building where the station is now, and putting together all these pieces that I hadn't anticipated. So this is this is this is filling in a lot of blocks for me. This is really interesting. When I first came in in 1977 in the fall, well, the first time I came in, it was it was the spring of 1977 because, no, I guess it was the spring of, yeah, it was the spring of 1977 because Alex was there. So um, when we, when I came in at that point, there was the studio in the basement of the little theater, which had a foyer, Studio A, Studio B, Studio C, and the music archive. And then we had the office that was, again, if you went up around the back end where the dumpsters were and everything on the back end of Memorial Hall, out the back door of the cafeteria, you would go up a set of stairs and there would be the uh, WRHU, well, WVHC office. WRHU was, were they ever WRHU when they were up there? No, they were in the basement. And then what happened was from what I understand, because I left in the 80s, and when I left in the 80s, we were still upstairs in the back. Yeah, we were still upstairs in the back. When I came back in 1987, they had um, moved their offices almost literally in the same part of the building but now instead of being way upstairs they were way downstairs and they had taken over the facilities that were under the stairs by the men's room right in memorial hall they had been moved from there and then 
1993, um, when Jeff died, uh, the university at that point was thinking about um, leaving the radio station in the basement of Memorial Hall. And I went and had a conversation with Jim Stewart, and we got moved to... Um, to the new building at Dempster. To the new building, yeah. I, I'll share that story with you if you want how I got him to do that, but you can't, you can't use okay. it. Okay, okay, we'll, 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 we'll talk after this. I, I'm, just, I'm just fascinated at, at, <laughs> at, at the long vision of this because when when you show up as a, as an undergrad and I didn't have any experience or, or any idea about Hofstra Radio or much of it before I got there but to see the movement of it and the improvement of the facilities and how Jeff I assume had a vision and a plan for what would ultimately become you know the the home of Hofstra Radio where it is now and how it moved through. And as, as, as students, we'd have questions like, well, why are we here? Why are we down the ramp from the bathroom? Why, why are we in this building? And, and to see it now, to piece it together through these interviews that I've been doing is, is really just is so interesting to me how you got out of the basement and then into the, eventually into the new building. That's very cool to me. Well, the way that we got out of the basement and into the new building, and this is not during my undergraduate time, obviously, was because there had been a, the university wanted to be accredited and they wanted to move from being a um, department of communication to a school of communication. And in order to be able to call yourself a school, you have to meet certain standards, certain educational and accreditation standards. And so in the process of moving towards that, they brought in a consultant who, um, they brought in three consultants. The first consultant they brought in was in 1985, who, explained to the university that the Department of Communication at that time was somewhat antiquated. It was um, not recognizing what was happening technologically in some areas, but the radio station was really interesting. Okay, so that happened in 1985, and they, and Jeffrey realized at that moment when the guy said but the radio station is interesting he either had to blow it up big to survive or he had to disappear even smaller and he didn't think he could disappear even smaller right right. so he began to think about ways that they could make the radio station blow up bigger and in 1987 he called me up and he said are you willing to come back and work here and produce and do the things that you do that no one else does and blow it up big for us? Because I really needed to blow up big. And I said, what the hell? I'll give it a shot. You know what I mean? <clears throat> and so I came back in 87 and I, I began to produce Good Morning Hofstra. Um, I began to work with um, the arts programming to create programs like the American Short Story Series and other things that took what was unique to the radio station and brought it out into the community. Mm -hmm. 
So by doing that, when the consultant came back around again in 1988 and said, the TV studio is really antiquated the films thing here is non-existent the journalism program it's kind of interesting but has anybody looked at the radio station by the way the radio station mm-hmm. the radio station and so he like i said he recognized in that first time that either they had to make it really big so no one could take it away or they had to make it so tiny nobody would care and he decided to go big and so because of that when the consultants came back around again in 1989 at that point jeff had lobbied because we'd won national awards we we had produced a series like the american short stories i was getting them grants from outside the university i was producing good morning hofstra we were performing at the stage of the kennedy center remember when bill and butch Mm -hmm. and i went off to dc together so because of all of that stuff the radio station couldn't be denied it just couldn't be and that was what he wanted he wanted it to to be positioned in a way that it would be healthy and it would be recognized. And so, you know, they finally moved them then towards the idea of being in the new building. But slowly, slowly from that first consultant coming in, I think it was like in 85, early 85, that was when they were able to slowly, slowly get over to Memorial Hall. I don't remember exactly. Teddy Ronneberger and um, uh, Grunstein can tell you exactly the minute that the studios moved out of the little theater to the basement of Memorial Hall. But it was in the basement of Memorial Hall that Jeffrey recognized that they were either going to have to really, you know, blow it up or like I said, disappear even further so as not to be threatening, you know? to the other other parts of the campus and the university for a number of reasons decided ultimately to put it in the new building where it deserved to be wow is it they they had just they had thought they were going to get away with not doing it brian but i i I believe that and and you know knowing all learning all this now at, at 20, I don't know if I would have appreciated or understood the, the, the long journey, the big vision of it. Um, but looking at it now, knowing as much as I do about the 80s and 90s and, and the times before and after, um, it's, just, it's just such a, such a, a compelling vision and, and it's a big idea. And, and I wish that Jeff had been able to uh, experience more of what he had envisioned by going big. Well, I think he did. I mean, you know, he's still here. Sure. We see him every once in a while here at the Kraus House. So, you know, I, I think that on some level, you know, the successes of the students, I mean, that was the thing, Brian, you would literally become a senior and you would spend your summer at ABC or you'd spend your summer at CBS. Right. He would just pick up a phone and you would have an internship at one of the major places, you know what I mean? And when 
it came around that, you know, they weren't going to give us the radio station. Um, I, I, I relied on that. I relied on that history tremendously, you know, so. Hmm. It's a, it's a great story. And, and I really appreciate you sharing it. I know it wasn't on our schedule of things to talk about, but it seems like it, it made sense coming back to it. And if, if I can, because you've, you've got all this history of the station and, and your career and all the things that you've done. I want to bring it back now to walking in at 17 or 18 years old. And you can decide whether it's the time with Alex when you first met Jeff and, and the radio station or when you uh, were as a freshman. But as you're walking into the station, as you're walking into that meeting where you proposed the nutcracker idea, what did you at that age think Hofstra Radio was going to be to you? I just thought it was a place to learn. You know, I didn't think that it would actually become as much of a important and um, meaningful place for me. When I first started, I just assumed that like Salonica, you know, I'd make some friends and you know, do the things that I wanted to learn and all the rest of that, but that ultimately, you know, it was just going to be another opportunity in my then short life. Um, What it has become, however, has been much more than that, not just because of the physicality of the buildings or the people that I met there, but the lessons I internalized, mm-hmm. the things that I still take with me. You know, for me, I think the one thing that people can say about me, whether they love me or they hate me, is that I'm a very fair minded individual. I really feel that everything and everyone should be treated as equally as possible. And it was learning how to make that possible in that environment that still is with me today, still is with me today. How do I, how do I try and be fair and equitable and, you know, based on a person's abilities and skills and individuality as opposed to what they look like and the assumption of who they might be and and all the rest of that. So to me, I think the thing that I, in that moment, he was willing to listen to my harebrained idea without any negativity, you know? There was no, oh, what does she think she's gonna be able to accomplish this little freshman? Instead, he was encouraging and he said, sure, let's see what you can do, you know? Sue, that's absolutely amazing. It's such a great story. You have so many good stories. Um, I know you have more and I'm I'm already working on more questions to ask. So okay. let's do this again sometime because I, I desperately want to know more uh, about your journey through Hofstra Radio. And thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate it. Okay, not a problem.